Welcome to another episode of Kiwi's Cane Stories, where neighbors meet neighbors. Today we have Eric Halverson, and we're going to talk about family offices and their history and the industry. Before we do that, a quick word from our sponsors. The Academy of Martial Arts in Kiwi's Cane, more commonly known as RDCA, is proud to have served as Ellen Paradise for 27 years. Join them for a free introductory class to kickstart your martial arts journey. RDCA is a family-run business headed by Sensei Robert Duzoglu with his daughter and son, Morgan and Derek, both senseis as well. They use the martial arts, elite conditioning, and life quest, their guided self-enlightenment course, to forge a stronger you. With over 100 years of combined martial arts experience between the Dusoglu senseis, RDCA provides a holistic approach to self-defense, covering a unique blend of stand-up, close-quarter combatives, technical groundwork, weapons training, and traditional form. Over 3,000 students have walked through the door and trained on the mat at RDCA in the last two and a half decades. You can call them at 305-365-0129 or visit their website at rdca.com. More information in the show notes. So back to Eric. Eric is the director at Clusters Capital, based in Brickle and Malid. They provide services to family offices and wealthy families and individuals. Eric, how are, how are you? Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sunday morning in Key Biscayne. Right. It's a beautiful morning. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Very good. By, by the way, we're uh, talking about uh, RDCA. You have, you're a student. I was a student. My wife's a black belt out of RDCA. And my son is a black belt out of RDCA. So yeah, we know them. Great people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see, they're fun over there, especially their black belt test, you know, with Oof. that... The, the last I didn't get there, thank God, because I've seen it a couple of times and it's it's harsh, but it's good. So, Eric, tell us. So what is, for those that don't know, let's start from the basic. Mm -hmm. What is a family office? Well, family offices, um, they say, well, they say that the, the history goes that the first family office was actually set up by J.D. Rockefeller, 80, late 1800s, just to manage the immense wealth. If you put their wealth in today's terms, it's in the hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. They needed a way to manage that for the family, for the family succession, to, to make sense of it and to, to make sure that all the family was taken care of. So they did that in the late 1800s and then the Carnegies followed and all the other famous rich families in the, in the US followed the, the big ones. After World War II, a lot of businesses were established that grew tremendously with the trade with Europe and, and the booming economy after that. In the 1990s, another group of let's say families cashed in or sold their businesses and created another set of family offices. Then we have the dot-com bubble and then the, the crypto bubble that, that happened a few years back uh, that also created a bunch of families that were very wealthy and that in turn, they set up their family offices in order to ma manage their wealth. So we've come from the first one in the late 1800s to about six, 7,000 family offices right now in the United States. Each one is a different world. Each one is a different. And the main driver generally for those, those types of family offices is privacy, succession for the family, management of their wealth, and controlling and distributing the, let's call it dividends, checks, whatever you want to call them, to the family members as the, the family's branches grow. There's a bunch of uh, families that have outgrown and grown through the years and remain wealthy. And these family offices tend to, which are set up by the family, they're private entities. Nobody knows generally what they are. They're very secretive and private. And they tend to do that. I mean, manage the family wealth, manage the family business, post-sale, let's say. So that the Rockefellers created the first one 
and these have grown into thousands. But the reason the reasons remain the same uh, throughout the stand, basically the years. So these all these families have different needs. They have different people in them. They have they come from different types of industries. So they are themselves uh, at <laughs> we call them a different beast. Each one. Mm-hmm. So as we manage as we manage um, some family offices that we do, we have to keep that in mind. So. What, what do I say when we say we manage family offices? We have to start with a structure. So the, generally what the patriarch of the family or the matriarch of the family does, it sets up the family office as an entity that manages the wealth of the family separately from the operating business. Generally, it starts before the upper, operating business is sold when they're in the 100, 200, 300 million dollar range. It, it's always more, it should be more. But it makes sense to have that. So they have an accountant or a group of accountants. They have lawyers, call it like an in-house counsel for the family and for all the family members. And they have wealth management and investment management within the the same structure. Those structures are expensive. If you set something up like in Miami, a simple family office set up in Miami just for one family would cost you two to $3 million uh, just to keep it up. So it has to make sense financially. That has to be a small percentage of your of your net worth in order for it to make sense. And it has to make sense also from a functional point of view. So what ends up happening is that many wealthy families don't set up a family office, but they have a good accountant, they have their lawyer, and they need somebody to manage their wealth independently and away from the banks. And the banks come in and the banks are great institutions, but the banks are looking for business, obviously, and they want to sell their businesses and their products and their the services that they provide for a fee to these families. And they're, they're a very sought after group because they are huge. They're huge. And we're talking billions and billions of dollars for the taking for these banks to, to charge fees and to, to provide services to. So where we come in as clusters capital is for the two things. We, we manage the wealth of uh, families that are under let's say the $200 million range of investable assets, because we need to give them uh, a service that they cannot provide on their own. They cannot, with $200 million, it's very expensive to set up your own family office. It, eventually, we've seen it happen. Eventually, they go bust. They decide to, to either convert it into a sort of a mixed thing with another family or many other families, so it doesn't provide the same service, or it uh, just collapses and they close it down. So what we provide is that wealth management service for that group of families in around the $200 million range and below. And we do that throughout Latin America and the US. This, by the way, is not a US exclusive thing. This has spread out all over the world since the Rockefeller days in the 1800s to Europe, to Switzerland as a base for a lot of family offices right nowadays. And, um, and also f- uh, throughout Latin America. They don't have the family offices in Latin America for obvious security reasons, for uh, everything related to uh, to privacy, especially. But I've, I mean, I've seen families that manage their the initial family office in their countries of origin in Latin America, with their sec their their trusty secretary has been there for thirty years, the accountant of the firm, and so starts sharing sharing work with the family office, and that's how they start. But at some point, they decide, okay, we have to out export this outside my country because there's a security issue in my country. I don't want people to know what I have here. And then that's why you operate in, in uh, out of Miami, which has become a hub for uh, family offices and for wealthy families of Latin America to come to do their finances here. 
So what we do is basically we take those families and we analyze their whole wealth picture. We have great systems and great experience and at doing this is basically giving you a diagnostics of your whole family wealth in all the banks where you have them. And we have families that have 10 banks, 15 banks, and it becomes unmanageable for them. So we manage that for them. We consolidate everything and we bring everything together for them to see and we advise them on the whole picture of their wealth. So there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I'm interested in. So you mentioned that the main, I guess, pillars of a family office is the privacy, the succession, the management, and the distribution, right? Correct. You also mentioned that uh, family offices normally are put together after a 200 or $300 million Threshold, let's call it. Threshold. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that this normally happens after a family or an individual sells, sells their business? Not necessarily. There are businesses that generate enough wealth for the families that they're already in their 200 $300 million range. And then in while the business or their businesses are operating and generating uh, cash flow for the family, they create these entities to start preparing for that eventual sale Generally, not necessarily it has to be a sale. It can be a succession of the same family business. So the family office should, if it's well set up, should help in that transition from the first generation to the second generation. Because as you know, if you have five sons, the, the patriarch says has five sons and daughters, not all five sons and daughters are going to be involved in the family business because they're not. One's going to be a surfer. One's going to be want to want to do... Uh, involved in the arts. The other guy is going to be involved in medicine because he wants to become a doctor. So those three are discarded from fam working in the industrial family business, right? So maybe those two who are maybe wanted to be engineers decided to go into the family business. But you have to you have to also provide for the others that are not in the family business in a, in a way that's equitable to all all the all the parties in charge. So you keep, you have to keep that family harmony intact as the business grows and transitions to the second generation and th hopefully third generation. It's very rare that you find in history, a family has gone beyond the third generation in wealth from the same origin. Uh, that's amazing, but it's a true fact. So families have gone into five, six, seven, eight generations, and you have several here on the key, by the way, that have done managed to do that. That's, uh, that's a testament to their, to the way they were organized from the, probably from the very beginning, because uh, that's a key factor in the succession planning. Succession is yes, important, right. but the, during that, you have to preserve the wealth that's being created and grow it and then distribute it accordingly, correctly to the, to the members. So you have a, a lot of things uh, going on there that, at the family office level, right? So when it comes to the succession, you mentioned that most families will make it to the third generation. Past the third generation. Past the, yeah. The so third most generation. wealth created, it's uh, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. That's the saying in the industry, right? Uh, the, the grandfather that started the business, whatever it was, it could be a chain of grocery stores. It can be uh, an industrial business, and he got into it. His kids grew up in a, seeing the father work hard, and some of them, as I said before, one one didn't want, the other one didn't want to work in the business because they, it wasn't their vocation. But the ones that took it over, took it over, and now you have the kids that are working on it and the grandkids that are very wealthy compared to their peers and start living the great life and don't pay much attention to the to the family business and the actual origin of the world that grandpa actually set up. So when these grandkids grow up, generally what happens and we've, we've seen happen is that they, they basically atomize the wealth. So they close on the business, they sell it out and they live 
great. And the, the, them and their families will probably live a couple of generations pretty, pretty well off. But the family business, the family unit, the family office gets disbanded after the third generation. And that's a common, th common thread. So family offices, one of the people that are in the industry of family offices, advising them on, on the structuring, what they want to do is when they want to provide them with tools so that doesn't happen. So it's succession tools, planning tools. We have families that we know that that have once a year meetings with all the members of the family just to discuss topics, not necessarily related to the business, but to keep them together, you know, to bring them together and, and to make them work together as a family in the hopes that the the younger generations start picking up on the idea of the of the family office and, and bring it along uh, to uh, to the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh generation. So I guess when it comes to like the basic structure, you mentioned you mentioned in Miami it can cost you maybe two to three million dollars to set up a family's uh, structure, and I know you tapped into it. But so what is what does that mean exactly? Like visual, I'm a more like a visual person. Sure. So how many people are we talking about? Are we hiring people with yes. that money? Yes. And what kind of people are we hiring? So you need to have account an accountant at least. You need to have a lawyer that's familiar with succession planning and trust and estate planning. You need to have um, at least one person that knows about financial management, wealth management, that has that can identify opportunities that the family can invest their excess funds in. And they all have to be compensated. They have salaries and there are generally people that come from the industry. I've seen it happen. They come from different uh, wealth management divisions of banks. They get hired out by the Let's say I'm the private banker for Mr. Whatever Gonzalez, and Mr. Gonzalez really liked me. We've been working together for 25 years, and at some point he says, "Eric, I know you work for such and such bank. I'll give you double your salary. Come work for me and manage my portfolio of. of uh, I'm, I'm, it's a great, it's a great idea. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, because how you compensate the person that you hire also influences the the." <laughs> the end result for the family office. I'll give you an example. So Mr. Gonzalez has me, he hired me out of, uh, it obviously it's a hypothetical, right? He hires me out of uh, out of uh, the bank I used to work for and I start management, management his, managing his excess assets in all the banks that he has. And let's say I manage $100 million in assets and that's my responsibility. And I get paid on how those $100 million do. If Mr. Gonzalez decides to get an offer to buy uh, a factory in Germany, and he's going to use twenty million dollars of those hundred million dollars. My asset pool goes down to eighty. So who's the first person that's going to try not sell him out of that? That may be a great idea for Mr. Gonzalez, but my incentive is for him to have all the money there. Same as the banks. The banks always want you to keep their money there because they're making fees on those monies. So it's a trick. It's a very tricky situation to see to how you compensate the individuals in your family office. So they don't work against you. Because my 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 instinctively, I'm going to say, listen, why don't you keep the? I have several good opportunities here. Don't buy the factory in Germany. Uh, keep the money in the banks, and I'll manage them for you. I'll give you a good return. Why? Because my my livelihood is there on the line. Aside from paying and going back to the expenses, aside from paying all these people, you need at least let's say a Bloomberg terminal to look at the markets. Typical thing that you have in all these financial offices, right? That's going to run you forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. You have rent. You have uh, all the all the expenses related to managing the family, depending how much services you want to provide the family members. Because so it could be concierge type services, 
like the kids have apartments in Key Biscayne and in Brickell and in Fort Lauderdale, and somebody has to take care of those apartments and manage that. So you need somebody to manage that for the family. So that's what typically what happens to these families. They want to do that. That tends to become expensive. So a two, two, three million dollar uh, tap uh, every year for that is really reasonable, and it's it's really really expensive. So that's what we say. And it's mathematical, right? So anything above two hundred million dollars, anything below two hundred million dollars, is going to hurt a lot to have keep that structure going for the long term. If you're in the five hundred billion dollar range, it's not going to be the depending on how you structure it. I've seen family offices have thirty employees just in the family office, which is because they're families of hundreds of people still operating, still working. So they they manage the the, the legacy business, let's say, and. Uh, and they manage the hundreds of people they have to send checks every quarter, right? So that's how these these things work. And they're, they're all over the world, so they need to manage uh, properties and cars and planes and and uh, and boats, yachts, insurance. Just I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. So it's it's a difficult difficult task to manage when when you have when you're relatively small. And a hundred million dollars is a lot of money, but it's not probably not enough to set up your own family office. And that's where we come in at that clusters capital. So at least on the wealth management side, and we can talk a little bit about that if you want later. You also mentioned, as you mentioned many times before, you know, 200 to 300 million and up of wealth and uh, to start a family office. And you're looking at two to $3 million, I guess, price tag every year to, mm -hmm. to maintain the basics needed, as you mentioned, you know, at least an accountant, a lawyer, and a wealth management. Uh, professional, yeah. Professional. For families that are not at that point to start a family office on their own, that 200 million range, that is where clusters capital comes in. Correct. So how do you how do you take on a client? This is a typical situation. The patriarch doesn't have a family office. He has $175 million to $150 million in different banks, aside from his his operating business and other assets, let's call them apartments uh, on Brickell and here in Key Biscayne and, in, and, a, and a very nice chalet in, in, in Aspen or somewhere. This person is managing that through his secretary of the office and and his personal lawyer or whatever, and he manages all that on his own, which is fine. He's, he manages very well. He also tends to have many banks that serve that tend to him on the private banking side. So they have he has he might have accounts at you know Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, City, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, the typical the typical suspects right here. In the, on, uh, and if he's international, he might have accounts at Santander. He might have accounts at uh, you know UBS in Switzerland, depending on where he is, right? And we're talking about a person that could be here in the states, living in the states, or not, uh, because it gets complicated. But let's say, how do we bring this person on? He says, okay, I have accounts at these five banks. Typical, typical case. Five, these five banks, I have uh, seventy-five million dollars in these five banks, spread out, different different investments. So he gets five different statements every statements every month. Every month he gets, um, and the, and if you analyze the statements, just going over them, they're they're this thick. Uh, they have uh, many many pages of stuff he doesn't understand because his business is, I don't know, electrical cables uh, or mining or pharmaceuticals. His business is not that, so he needs somebody to interpret that. And each bank manages for some reason to get it totally different from the other. So he might have the exact same assets at two banks. But the same as the statements and how they are arranged look very differently. So he doesn't make heads or tails of it. He just has five teams of bankers at each bank working his wealth. And he and he goes to lunch with this one, 
with that one in New York, with that one in Switzerland, with that one. So he, that's how he does his year. He, he has one or two meetings a year with his bankers and he feels he has some sort of control and oversight. But what we found is that in reality, he doesn't. So how do we approach him and say, listen, you have no control over what you're doing. I can show you. So Clusters is an SEC in, uh, registered investment advisor, meaning we're registered with, uh, with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. We have, we can, we have, we're, su we're subject to all these privacy rules, obviously, that we have to comply by. And we've been doing this for a while. I mean, among the, the four or five people in there, we have, like you were saying, for the RDCA guys, we have over 150 years of experience if you add us all in. I don't, I don't like that comparison, but we sound, we make, we, we're made to be too old. But, um, but we do have the least of us has at least 25 years of experience in this field. So we know what we're doing. We think we know what we're doing. So we say, listen, give me the five statements. We'll look them over, see what you have. What we usually find when we see that is that he has duplicated risks or du duplicated investments of the same kind or the same ilk at different cost levels because banks charge differently depending on the, on the product, but some char banks charge more than others uh, on the different types of, of services and products that they provide. So we go in there and we analyze each one for cost, for return, and for risk. And uh, we'll come back and tell them, listen, uh, what did your banker tell you he was charging you for your for your account? Oh, he charges me 50 basis points, which is 0.5% a year on my $10 million with that bank. Great. So we analyze it. In jet, he doesn't see the underlying costs. There's a ton of underlying costs and the structures and the products and everything that's underneath the the, the private banking costs that they charge him, the 0 0.5, let's say. And we managed to inevitably find at least another two points, meaning it's not, two, it's not 0.5, but it's 2.5 that he's charging every year. And there's ways to reduce that. So we provide him ideas on how to reduce that cost, strategies on how to do it once he hires us, of course. But we can actually say in the initial, as you say, how do you bring them in? Well, we bring them in, give me this, show me the statements, show me what you can do with this, show me how can I save money and make, make a better return adjusted to my risk tolerance. Another thing that banks tend not to do is provide a common benchmark, meaning, oh, Alejandro, you made you know $5 million this year. This is a great return for you. It's a 7% return. Yeah, but if you compare yourself to the rest of the market, you're probably half what the return has been this year for the market, to give you an idea. You don't know it because the banker's telling you it's a great return and you say, well, he's a professional, he should know what he's telling me, but it's not really a, a, a great return for you. So we try to put everything in, in that in context for the client and bring him in and say, okay, we have we can create a benchmark that manages your manages to, to measure each banker and we'll put each banker and each bank to compete against each other in a good way for your benefit. And we'll be your, many of our clients have called us their guardian angels because we're, we're sitting here looking over their relationship with the bank and if the bankers are smart, they'll know that we're there to help our client. So they have to do their best to help us help their client. So if they do that, they'll get a better return for the client and they'll get more assets for the client because these bankers are only measured, mostly measured. We, we all come from the private banking industry, so we know they're measured on the amounts of assets under management that they have for the bank as bankers. So they want the, the, they're always fighting for the client to bring them more money. So if they understand what we're doing, being the coordinator and the overseer of all the financial relationships of the client, he'll understand or she'll understand that 
the better she does for in, in related to cost and to return based on the, uh, the parameters, parameters, sorry, that we have set up for them, the better, the better, the, the, the more assets probably he's going to get. We don't direct the assets, but we just show objectively to the client. Bank A is doing this. His T's got a 7% return and a high level of risk. This one has a less, less risk, but a 10% return. This one costs you three times more than the other two. So that the, it's an objective decision numbers for the, for the, for our client, the patriarch of that family to decide where to put his assets, uh, and to, to move his assets around. And it's, it's, uh, it's been, we've, we've been doing this for five years and we're probably the only, um, the only, uh, registered investment advisor on the street here in Miami that actually does this because most of them, what they do is try to get a little piece of the pie. Give me a little piece of the pie. Try me out. We say, I either see the whole picture or I don't see anything. I don't want you as a client because I'm providing you bad advice. If I only, sorry, if I only see a sliver of what your investments look like, uh, then I cannot, I cannot, uh, give you the advice on everything else because I might be concentrating a lot of risk here or not enough in that piece, because I don't know the rest. If I know the rest, I can actually measure and, and see uh, quantitatively exactly how much, how much risk you're, you're able to take and how much return we're able to provide given that risk. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very interesting business. It's become a, uh, a great way to, to help families. And once they're on, uh, on board with us and they see the platform, cause we have a platform that actually captures all the data from all the banks. Uh, overnight and we see what, how all their banks closed last night. Remember before he used to, he can go online, but most, most, most of these guys don't have time to go online every day and to check their accounts and what they're going to see. But we captured data from the banks directly in, the, in a blind feed, uh, that goes directly to our system. So we can see all the banks holdings a day to day at the end of the day, that day. So, um, it provides us with up to the minute information on what all their banks are doing. And we can spot uh, problems and we can spot trends very, very quickly. So that helps us a lot with managing the clients. So it's, uh, it's, it's actually a lot of fun and it's not, it doesn't require a lot of people. We are in the office. We are five people. Uh, one of us is, uh, one of our members of our team is working out of Geneva, but it's registered in an office here in, in, in Miami. The other ones, the other four are here in Miami and, uh, one of them is a compliance officer. So. So basically we're, we're, we're a very compact team that actually works, uh, very well with the systems that we have to manage right now. We're managing close to $800 million in assets. And, um, it's also important to tell you that, that we also have in our quest for looking around for the, around the, the client's wealth to see what he has. We also like to know from the client, once we establish this relationship and it becomes more profound, let's say, we'll ask them, okay, what, tell me about your real estate holdings. And it turns out that these people have millions and millions of dollars in real estate. So what happens? This bank X offers them a fund, a real estate fund. That's awesome. I said, yeah, but you already have all this real estate. Why would you buy that real estate fund? So that's part of our job, knowing what he has in the real world. And then in the financial world, which is also real, but it's numbers, uh, what those assets mean uh, mean for him and what amount of risk he's taking, depending, or she's taking, depending on what, what his whole wealth looks like apartments, real estate, planes, automobiles, collections, art. We have many clients that have incredible collections, uh, art collections that are worth millions and millions of dollars. 
and you see some funds, some banks pushing funds that invest in contemporary art, for instance. Uh, no, <laughs> you already have enough. I mean, it's it's an it's an enough part of your portfolio to make it to make sense of of uh, uh, of what you're doing and, and make it make it uh, make it a reasonable amount of risk for that particular type of asset, like art, for instance, or real estate. So uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Each each family uh, that we take on is totally different from the next. In fact, we actually open a cousin office. It's not directly re related, but it's part of the same group in Madrid, like you said earlier, uh, just to deal with the clients that are not moving towards Madrid from Latin America instead of Miami, or the, the ones that don't want to come to Miami but want to go directly to Madrid because of language, immigration, family, etc. So, so it's become a very interesting and fun business to to work in because it's not competing against the banks; it's working with the banks and in helping our clients, sitting with our client on their side of the table and dealing with the banks and the, the barrage of products that they put in front of them every day, which is a lot. So from what you're telling me, what you what you guys do is you guys are overseeing people's wealth being held by other custodians like the banks or in, in case of real estate, you were giving me an example pre-podcast that you help, you help set up the deal, but um, you find someone to manage those properties, and then you oversee them as well. Right? Correct, correct. So we help we help the we help the families, as you said. We oversee what the banks what the banks are holding for them in custody, and we oversee also. And very importantly, we didn't talk about this a little bit. And we need to talk about this a little bit. The banks are constantly bombarding the clients with products because remember the banks are manufacturers of products. They design structured notes. They design funds. They design special vehicles for their clients, especially the high net worth clients. And they're always selling it to them like you know, the, the, the greatest, best thing. We coming from the industry, we know that there's some very, very good offerings out there, but they're also very costly sometimes, and they're they're less costly alternatives for them to to work uh, to, to 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 get the same result. So we we analyze all those offerings coming into the to the clients from the different banks. It also allows us to see what the banks are offering the, the general clients, and if we have clients that have other clients that have access to those banks. We can actually point them in that direction. They'll make they'll make the bankers very happy. But it, the whole point here is to protect the client from a barrage of of information that they have no way to know anything about, literally, because it's very complicated uh, financial structures that they put in front of them and say, "Oh, no, this is great. This will provide this, this return, and this is the cost." And and generally, they know they they think they know what they're looking at, and they're very well sold, let's say. But but we know better in a sense that we can actually call the the herd of, of products coming at them right and 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 kill off a, a few of the the ones that are going to cost them too much money or provide them an average return that we can get somewhere else for nothing compared to what they're asking here in this bank in particular going to the real estate side what we have done in the past is we have um, set up club deals with clients our larger clients we find we hear of an opportunity through our clients or somebody else of let's say a logistic warehouse in Europe uh, opportunity, several of them during the pandemic, we had a we had a good deal there. So we pre we we set up, we we looked at, we we got the people in in Europe to look at the deal. They provided us uh, feedback on that, and then we got the clients to invest into a vehicle that co-owns that or owns that with other people owns that piece of that logistic uh, real estate. 
they've done great because they bought them, you know, real estate, the, the good money in real estate is done when you buy it, not when you sell it. So you, if you buy well, and this was very well bought at a very good price, uh, we did great. So we, we managed that and we include that asset, let's call it, or those, those groups of assets in their portfolio. So we see it as part of every time we sit with the client and we generally do this, uh, since our clients are all over Latin America and in Europe, we do it, uh, online. We do it, uh, basically we do it on Zoom, on a Zoom call, and we can show them on the screen everything they have, every single asset they have uh, overseen by us in, a, in one single screen. And we can go through it and we can be as granular as the, the Ukraine war broke out last year, was it? Or was it two years ago? Last year. Amazing. So when the Ukraine war, the first thing that our clients ask, how much money do I have in Ukraine? Well, we can actually see how many dollars to the cent are invested in Ukraine through the different bonds and bond funds and stock funds that are 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 in all the banks that he has or she has. And we can actually tell him, well, you have $2,346 in Ukraine or you have $600,000 in Ukrainian bonds. Let's get those out of there. So we have we can manage that risk as well because we have we can be as granular as that. So it it, 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 it's a, it we have great tools to, to make the client uh, look into into the at the atomic level of, of of his or her wealth. So going back on on how we charge for all this, how 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 do we make money? We sit on the client side and we just charge the client. Meaning we only bill the client every quarter for a portion a percentage of assets under management, and it's that's generally going to be between 0.5 depending on the size and 0.75 to one percent of their wealth. But we we are what we we, we can't promise anything under SEC rules, obviously, not return and anything else. But we, what, we, what we tend to show them uh, in, even immediately is the amount of hassle and the amount of costs that we save for them is huge, especially cost. We generally tend to prove to them after the first few months working with them that we're, we're actually, we're making our money, we're making our fees, and we're saving them, saving them at least what they're paying us in fees additional to that from that word, what what they did before they knew us. On average, we save around 1% to our clients. I'm going to say that as a, throw it out there as a figure. But 1% is huge if you have, a, it's a million dollars a year, if you have under a million dollars, right? We save them after our fees. So that's that's pretty big. We've seen clients, like our biggest client, last year we did the math for them and we saved them $4.5 million. And it's not, it's a, yeah, it's 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 huge. I mean, how, I say, how many Fendi bags can you buy your wife with four point five million dollars? Right, millions of bags. So, really, you really, really can can see it, and it's tangible to them immediately. And it's something that these guys want to do is 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 a reduced cost at all times. That's their thing. Uh, they don't want to pay more than they have to, and they don't know generally how much they're getting charged by the institutions and the products that they're buying out there in the financial markets. And we tell them. We put them in front of them and say, okay, this is cheaper, this is better, this is less risky. And that's our job on a regular basis. So what are some common mistakes that you see wealthy individuals or smaller family offices do? So the, the typical mistake that we see, and we see it across the board, is that they, they take the eye off the ball and they put too much trust into their banker doing the right thing for them at all times which is fine, the bankers, we used to be bankers ourselves, so we know that whether where they're coming from, but they need to second guess their bankers on a regular basis because there's more out there than what they're offering. And it's, uh, and, and it might be a great offering, but 
they have to actually, we've seen it happen that hundreds of times that, that they just let things slide and it costs them dearly in the end. So that, that I would say that that will be one of the, one of the main ones. Pay attention uh, would be the, the advice there. Pay attention to what your bankers are doing. We can help with that. Obviously that's what we do. Uh, pay attention with what your bank is offering. Pay attention to what, what the, the products you're being sold uh, on a regular basis and keep an open mind to other possibilities to, to what's, what's going on around the world. Don't get caught in another typical mistake that we see them if they get caught in a fad. So it's, it's, and I don't want to speak ill of crypto. Crypto has its place, but last year, everybody wanted to get, get into crypto, 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 and there's spaces in crypto you can go. Now we find out and we've seen, and there are places that you shouldn't even touch with a 10 foot ball. So instead of jumping right in and, and following blindly to what the, the, the professionals you're used to telling you, get second, a second opinion. That's what we provide a lot at clusters. We provide them with a second opinion on everything they see from their banks and, uh, it, avoid, it helps them avoid mistakes and, and it helps, helps them save a lot of money. So this has been great you know, uh, to learn about family offices. I, one more question that comes to mind before we talk a little bit about the key is, so I, I can definitely see, assuming when when, I'm, when I get there, I'm going to put it out there, <laughs> <laughs> but I can definitely can see as my wealth would grow, share some of those duties. Oh, I need to manage my properties with staff or with the assistant that has been working with me for, for several years. Um, so when should I consider, where do I need to be or like the minimum of, of wealth that I should generate in order for me to truly consider somebody like your services before I make mistakes or I lose control. Sure. You know? Sure. Well, it can be at any point, but, but typically what the clients of tag, where we can add the most value, I would say it's in, in, in wealthy families that have above the $10 million range in assets to invest. That means they have at least two or three banks, at least some, some real estate investments out there. Uh, but that will be the minimum threshold for us to make it, make it valuable to them, uh, and, and, and as they grow, right. Uh, so that, that will be my, that will be my, the, the, let's, let's call it our minimum, our, our minimum amount that makes sense. It's not that we're choosy it's because we know where we can add value and we can't in a hundred thousand dollar account at, you know, E-Trade, we cannot do anything with that. Uh, that's, that's, but, yeah. but in a, in a, in a multi-account environment with very complicated, sophisticated products, there we can help a lot. Okay. And, and $10 million, you meant, I mean, you said $10 million of investable funds, or is it just $10 million in assets or a combination or it's just my total wealth is 10 million. It could be properties. It could be my office business. It, it could be, it could be, it could be, it could be investing. let's call it investable assets. So what you have is investments, your home doesn't count. Okay. Your business is, it could be part of that, but your business has a value that's not mark to market on a regular basis. It's, it's whatever you think it is, somebody can come in and buy it for. So we generally, when we mean the $10 million, it's just investable assets, meaning investable real estate you hold for investment purposes. Um, and, 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 and again, I've seen many families, wealthy families that even though they have the $10 million house, let's say in, uh, in Aspen, they don't just keep the house. They, they, when they're not using it as a family, they rent it out on a rate and they have a people that actually rent it out for them and they make a ton of money and they make a good return on that $10 million investment because 
that's the way they're structured. No, they want to make money with their assets. So any asset that, that makes money for you, I would call it counting to that uh, $10 million. But generally, to keep it simple, we would say the, um, the $10 million in the banks and investments. Okay, awesome. So we like to close the show with a with one question about KiwiSkin, since you know, you're a KiwiSkin resident and you've enjoyed the key for many years. Uh, what is a perfect weekend for you and your family here in the key? Yeah, we've been here 22 years um, and I've been coming here to Ibiscane with my parents since 76 when they bought an apartment here in Sunrise Drive, year 76, imagine that. So, but it's changed through the years as the kids have grown, but now our perfect weekend would be on a Saturday morning, go to the market, the farmer's market that they have at the community church, get some tacos there. Uh, go back home, eat uh, eat the tacos, then go to the beach. Maybe go home to, to a home of some friends and have a barbecue or something like that. That's a typical Saturday. Sunday is mass or have a podcast or <laughs> something like that on a Sunday. But it's generally mass and then probably lunch somewhere uh, with the kids that are available. We have five kids, so the kids that are available uh, are, are here on the key at that time. And uh, just generally hanging out and relaxing a little bit. That's the uh, typical Q-Scan weekend. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the show and telling us all about family offices. Very interesting. Uh, thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. The Academy of Martial Arts in Kibiscane, more commonly known as RDCA, is proud to have served as Ellen Paradise for 27 years. Join them for a free introductory class to kickstart your martial arts journey. RDCA is a family-run business headed by Sensei Robert Dusoglu with his daughter and son, Morgan and Derek, both senseis as well. They use the martial arts, elite conditioning, and life quest, their guided self-enlightenment course, to forge a stronger you. With over 100 years of combined martial arts experience between the Dusoglu senseis, RDCA provides a holistic approach to self-defense, covering a unique blend of stand-up, close-quarter combatives, technical groundwork, weapons training, and traditional form. Over 3,000 students have walked through the door and trained on the mat at RDCA in the last two and a half decades. You can call them at 305-365-0129 or visit their website at rdca.com. More information in the show notes.